Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Kalamazoo, Michigan campus. For more info on the church, visit newdaycommunity.org. All right, here we are, Sunday morning. This is a message um, in our Grace Canon series. And, uh, and what we're doing in this, in this series is we're looking at various passages of Scripture, various uh, scenes throughout the Bible to, to just see the grace of God on display. Uh, Graham, a few weeks back, he told us, he kind of gave a really simple definition in a way. He said, wherever human- God and humanity meet, grace exists. Grace exists wherever God and humanity Intersect, And so we see that, we've been seeing that this whole time, that God's story with us, with, with the human race, is saturated in grace, and it's not any different in the book of Jonah, which is what we'll be looking at today. So just to, just to start, I say, I say the name Jonah, the book of Jonah, how many, how many kind of think they have a working idea of what happens in the book of Jonah, right? Back, back there, okay, maybe... Richard, okay, cool. Uh, what, what, tell me, what, what's it about? <laughs> Jonah. The story of, Nathan, what's the story of Jonah about? The fish. The fish. Wait. It's about, it's about Jonah, and it's about this fish. Anybody else? Obedience. Obedience. All right. It's better. Grace. Hey, there we go. Um, we have, we have, this is what, uh, the, the Bible Project guy, Tim Mackey, it's what he calls the VeggieTales factor. The VeggieTales factor, where, where, the, where we have these Bible stories, these scenes that have been played out in these children's kind of cartoons, and we think we have this idea of what it's about, but uh, the story of Jonah is really not about the fish. Like, the fish is not the point, really, at all, of the story of Jonah. It's a very minor character, in this, in this book. And so hopefully we can, we can look at how stories about other things. So, but, but before we move on, here's kind of a, just a sampling of just like Google search Jonah, book of Jonah. These are the children's books, titles. Uh, so here's Jonah. He's essentially surfing in the tongue of this whale. <laughs> By the way, Jonah's not the hero of this story. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, but... But here he's kind of he's doing his thing. Here's Jonah. He's essentially like military pressing the mouth of this whale. He's uh he's working out. Here's this scene where Jonah's being swallowed while the sailors look look on. And here's just uh you know just uh thank you very much whale. I'm back to my mission now. Uh, everything's fine. Very well. All right, so, so again, uh, Jonah's not about the fish. The, 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 the fish only appears twice in this whole book. Um, and really it's just this, this, this aquatic tomb that vomits Jonah back up to restore to him God's original mission. And so just to give us a bit of context before we get into this story... Uh, Here's, here's a few things we'll look at. Jonah was a real prophet. He's only mentioned one other time, though, in the whole Old Testament. So he's a part of the minor prophets, and he was indeed a minor prophet. Like, he was not a big deal. He was, a, he was only 
like I said, mentioned one other time, and here's, here's where he was mentioned. It's 2 Kings 14. How many of you have read that in your morning devotionals? Okay. Well, I'll update you, refresh your, your brain. So, so 2 Kings 14. Jeroboam is, is the king of the northern kingdom. He's a wicked king. He's not good. He's, he's doing bad things. He's the son of Joash, king of Israel, reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So, again, not a good, not a good king. He restored the border of Israel according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by, the, by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Goth Hefer. And so this is the only other time Jonah, the prophet, appears in the Bible. And it's interesting because we have this guy Jonah, this prophet, who's prophesying national expansion, the expanding of the border to a, a wicked king, a king who's, who's, who's known in the, in, the, in, the, in the imagination of Israel to be a wicked, like God does not approve of what he's doing. But Jonah's like, we're going to increase. We're going to keep going. And so in the mind, if you're, if you're a first reader of Jonah, you're like, isn't that that one, that one prophet who's mentioned that one time? Or he, he's like, during this reign of this wicked king, and he's, he's kind of, he has some national interests in mind. And This is the only other idea we have of him before we open up the book of Jonah. So, again, a real prophet. In fact, Amos, I didn't put the reference up, but Amos actually reverses Jonah's prophecy to Jeroboam, the national expansion. Amos, during the same time, says, actually, no, the kingdom is so wicked that God's going to utterly destroy it. And only a couple decades later, Assyria completely wipes out the northern kingdom. And so it turns out Amos was, was a little more accurate in his, in his prophecy. All right, Nineveh, which is where Jonah was sent to, Nineveh was a real city of, it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, Assyria was the worst, most violent, terrorist-like empire in the ancient world. Like, I'll spare you the details, but they were horrible. And, and this is where God sends Jonah. I want you to go to this most violent, God-forsaken, pagan city. Because of their wickedness has come up before me. So they're the enemy. They're, they are the enemy of Israel. The biggest threat to any of Israel's interests. One other thing uh, is that Jonah was unique in the prophetic literature. Almost all other prophetic literature in the, in the Old Testament is the, is the actual prophetic oracles of the prophet. Like, the word of the Lord came to Micah and it said this, and it's all of Micah's prophecies. And Jonah... Jonah only prophesies five words in the whole book, and they're really kind of inadequate. Not a very good five-word sermon, and we'll look at that. But Jonah is a prophetic book about the prophet. It's a story about this prophet, and uh, and it's it's brilliant. It's a work of literary brilliance um, that uses all of these. There's images and metaphors and exaggerations. Everything is great. The the storm is great. The fish is great. The city is great. The the king is great. All, all, everything is kind of hyperbolic in Jonah to kind of get you to see what the author is trying to get you to, to look at, which is that the man of God is fleeing. The pagan sailors are repenting. The, the pagan city is repenting. Everything is kind of opposite of what you would expect. So, 
Let's dig in. Let's jump in. This is, the, this is where the book starts. It's only four chapters. Jonah 1 starts here. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. That is, Jonah being dove, means dove. Amittai means faithfulness. So this is the dove, the son of faithfulness. And it says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, to say it a second time, away from the presence of the Lord. So to give us a little bit of geography here, a little map, uh, I don't know if you can see this very well, but Jonah's on the, on the, the, Whatever, on the right side over here, A, that's where Jonah's from, Goth, Heifer, Jerusalem, Israel, right there. He's told to go to Assyria, to Nineveh, and he gets on a boat to go to Tarshish, <laughs> which is literally the farthest possible place he could go. Like, it, there, there's almost a, there's a bit of, like, irony here. Like, uh, oh, this is like, for us, what we would call Timbuktu. Like this is the farthest possible place that Jonah could run. We should be asking ourselves at this point, why is Jonah running? Like, why is he running? We can, we can kind of presume, right? This is the enemy. He's a Jew. This would be like, you know, maybe like a, 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 a rabbi trying to parachute in the middle of the Third Reich in, in Nazi Germany and saying, Repent! And thinking that it would go well for him. This is, this is, this is a death sentence for Jonah. So maybe he's just fleeing because, because it's so terrifying, the idea. But I would say, actually, let's put a pin in that. Because Jonah actually tells us, at the end of the book, he tells us why he's running. And it's not because he's afraid. So, so what's funny, too, is that um, Jonah's a prophet, Right? prophets are supposed to kind of know a little bit about God, maybe some theology. You would think he would know Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, which he will, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even in Tarshish, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. But Jonah's like, no. Listen, I'm going away from the presence of the Lord. It may even be that Jonah kind of just had a very limited view of God, that God was a, as it was a nationalistic God. God was a God of Israel. And so if he flees to the far side of the world, well then he has escaped the national kind of local presence of the Lord. <laughs> But, but, but no, no, Jonah, you don't understand. God is way bigger than your limited view of him. Part of what the author, I think, is trying to get us to do here is actually look at Jonah and just kind of laugh. Like, seriously, Jonah, are you seriously doing this right now? But part of the brilliance of Jonah is that as we're laughing, in the end, we change the name, and then, and then, and then we're laughing at ourselves. Right? We're actually, 
It's, turn, it's turned around. It holds up a mirror and it says, where, where do you do this? Where do you know that God's given you something to do and you just say, no, I have a better plan for my life. I have a different vision for my life and it doesn't involve going into difficult circumstances. It involves running away from difficult circumstances to what I don't even know, I don't even know what Tarshish involves, I don't even know what's there, but I know it's better than, than facing what God's calling me to do. So, where are you fleeing to Tarshish? That's a question you should ask yourself. Because even there, God's present. Even there, you can't escape him. So we're laughing, right? We're laughing at Jonah. We, we go on. He gets onto the ship, and immediately he goes down into the, into the bottom, and he, and he falls asleep. And then this massive storm sweeps up. They're somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea, a massive storm. And, uh, and all the sailors begin to call out to their gods, saying, whomever, whatever God I'm worshiping, save me, save me, save me. No, nothing's working. Finally, the captain goes down to Jonah and wakes him up. He says, what are you doing? Don't you see that we're in a mess here? And so, and so they cast lots. Jonah's now up on the deck. They cast lots, and, and the lot falls on Jonah. And so they ask him, in verse 8, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. Because the lot said that Jonah knew. It's ancient dice. They say, uh, what is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So this is again, this is actually funny. Jonah's on a boat in the middle of the sea, fleeing from the presence of the Lord on a, on a boat, the God who made the sea and the dry land. Like it, the sailors are like, what? so you're saying that the God who made this thing that we're on that's about to kill us, the sea, you're running from him. Okay. So the men were exceedingly afraid. And said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And so he's not trying to hide anything. He gets on the ship and says, hey listen, I serve the God of the heavens and he made the sea and the dry land. But, but would you mind if I go with you? I'll pay the fare. I'll go with you on a boat at the sea all the way to the farthest ends of the earth. He's not hiding much. And, and so they're afraid because... If, if it's true, if what, if what he says is true, that, that the God he serves has created the heavens and the earth, has, has, is the God who's created the sea and the dry land, then, then he's, he's disobeying this God and it does, it's not going to go well for them. And so what they do is, uh, he, they ask him, well, what should we do? And he says, throw me overboard. That's, that's the best solution for you right now. He doesn't, notice he doesn't pray. All the other sailors are praying. There's no prayer in, in Jonah 1. He just, he says, no, throw me, I know what you should do. You should throw me into the sea because then the storm will stop. And so the sailors are a little apprehensive to this. The sailors are like, listen, if your God is the God who made the sea and we kill you, well, that, it's gonna, that's going to put blood on our hands. And so, let's hold off on that. So they try as hard as they can to row 
to the shore, wherever the shore would be. They can't get there. The storm is too bad. And so while they're praying to Yahweh, they're saying, Lord, you know, our hands are clean. This is what he said to do. We're just going to do it. And they throw him over. As soon as they throw him overboard, it says the sea stopped its raging. Now, we kind of maybe know what happens, but, but up to this point, like, this is imminent death. Jonah is dying. He is going into the bottom of the sea, done. But God, in his grace, meets Jonah at the deepest place of utter helplessness in the bottom of the sea and, and, and provides a, a sort of aquatic tomb to swallow Jonah and actually restore him. Often it, it, it's often unfortunate, but at the, at the, it's at the worst, deepest, most helpless place that we actually can find grace. When we're at our complete wit's end, when we've made the worst mistakes, when we're, when we're totally, utterly helpless to help ourselves, that's where God's grace can finally meet us because we've, we've seen it. We've seen our utter helplessness. We've seen our despair. We've seen how we can't help ourselves. That's the place where grace meets us. And so despite Jonah's best efforts, it would seem, he's rescued. He doesn't, he doesn't die. By the way, Jonah's actually quite suicidal throughout this whole this whole book. Like he asks to kill himself. He says, throw me overboard. Like he just doesn't, he don't, there's like this need for uh, an ancient therapist in Jonah's life. But I think there's, there's, a, there's a brilliance here. Sometimes we can read, it's so literally that we miss the, the literary brilliance of what's going on. The author's using these extreme images to get us to see actually our own worst tendencies. And so, the story goes on, they throw him overboard, they, the sea stops, it's raging, Jonah sinks to the bottom, the, the fish uh, is sent by God, and, and then in chapter 2, it's a, it's a prayer, it's, a, it's the first prayer of Jonah, but it's missing some key elements of an actual like repentant prayer. He kind of just says, here I am in a fish, and this is crazy, but God, you're... Salvation is from the Lord. He's not actually turning. He's not actually saying, wow, look at how much I've messed up. He's just, he ends up saying, salvation is from the Lord. And it says that the, that the fish vomits him back up onto dry land. So chapter 3, that was chapter 2 summary. It's a prayer. Chapter 3 gets back into the narrative. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The message that I tell you. So this time Jonah goes, he listens. When he gets there, the city is massive. It's the biggest city in the ancient world. And the author is using hyperbole. He says, he says it's a three days walk. That would be the equivalent of about 50 miles in the ancient world. Because you walk everywhere. Nineveh was about seven miles in circumference, which was huge. And so to say it was a three days walk is, is for the ancient mind, it's, 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 it's total exaggeration, but it's to this point where Nineveh was huge, and Jonah walks, it says, he walks one day into it, and he gives this five-word sermon. And we'll see, it's missing some key elements. If you're, if you're, if you're a, 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 
a prophet sent to an, an ancient or a, a, a pagan city that doesn't know Yahweh. This is what he says. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And notice there's no, there's no content of what they did wrong. He's not telling them what, what they've done to deserve this, this wrath. There's no telling them what they should do to make it right. How they should, how they should act and respond to this evil that's in their midst. And, and then there's no mention of Yahweh. Like there's no mention of God or anything about where he comes from or on whose behalf he's speaking. It's just 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And so again, despite Jonah's best efforts, it would seem, Nineveh believes. Nineveh actually repents. Even the, even the cows repent in this story. Even the cows put on sackcloth and they fast and, they, and the king you know, laments and he calls a fast through the whole city. And he says, everyone, we must turn from our wickedness. We must turn from our, from our evil ways and maybe God would relent concerning this overturning. And so, and so uh, it's for the end of chapter 3. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. So did Nineveh deserve uh, destruction? Yes, that's, that's, that's why God sent Jonah so, that, so that, 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 that he would be able to show them mercy. Because it wasn't until they were able to turn and repent that this mercy could flow. But they, re- they turn, they repent, so God relents. And here Jonah shows his true colors. Jonah actually tells us why he ran in the first place. At the beginning of chapter 4, it says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. I think we can put that in more vo- modern verbiage, uh, but you can figure that out. This is Bible language for it was, he was mad. He was furious. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a good word there. So, so what's, what's interesting here, it's important to know, Jonah, again, he tells us why he ran, because he, did, he actually knew a little bit of the character of God, and it made him mad. Because it was, he wasn't, that's not how he thought. That's not how he acted. Jonah wasn't gracious. Jonah wasn't merciful or slow to anger. He's, he's quick to anger. <clears throat> so he takes, this is what he's doing, he's, he's quoting Exodus 34. This is, a, this is a, a central moment in the history of Israel. Moses is on a mountain with God in Exodus 34. Moses hides in the cleft of the rock. God says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh. And then he says, Gracious and merciful, slow to, this is who I am, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm slow to anger, and I'm bounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So, so Jonah's taking God's self-revelation of himself, and he's throwing it back in God's face as an insult. 
He's, in, he's insulting God with the very words that God says he is. So he's saying, this is why I ran. Because I want a God in my own image. A God who thinks like me. And you're not like me. So if you won't kill them, kill me. He's kind of come to this ultimatum. So if you, if you won't kill my enemies, I can't live with a God who loves my enemies. So would you just please kill me? Like this, is, this is extreme here. Almost so extreme that we can't see ourselves in it. And the story goes on. There's a couple more verses at the end of chapter 4. And it it's, continues to be brilliant and, 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 and convicting and all sorts of things. But I'm going to stop here and just ask us a few questions. Uh, first, just kind of summarizing what's happened so far. Jonah didn't want them to believe. <clears throat> Jonah was exceedingly mad that Nineveh, despite a very poor prophetic word, prophetic message, lacking major details, he was mad that they ended up repenting because they were his enemies. They was the biggest national, Assyria was the biggest national threat to Israel. Again, Jonah's prophesying national border increase to Israel in 2 Kings. Assyria is the biggest national political threat to the nation of Israel. Second, Assyria wasn't Hebrew. Assyria was Assyrian. Uh, Jonah, from what, from what he even said to the sailors in chapter 1, they ask him all these questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? What's your occupation? And, and he, starts with, he starts with this. I'm a Hebrew. Now, many commentators point out that from Jonah's response there in chapter 1, he's actually leading with his ethnicity. He's leading with his race. He's saying, I am a Hebrew. In other words, you are, you are, you are the other. You are not. I am a Hebrew and I serve the God of, of the sea and the dry land. And then, and then just in general, so there's a national interest, there's kind of the... The, the ethnic elitism, and then there's this thing that, that, that just on the basic kind of level, they were just his enemies. There was a personal heart-level hatred toward, toward Nineveh. And, uh, and so he didn't want them to believe. The question then for us, I just want to consider is, who do you not want to believe? Like who... Who, what, what group, what person, what people group do you actually not want to turn to God? You don't want them to come to the relationship with the God who made the sea and the dry land. So you might say, well, of course no one. Like I want everyone on a basic level to know God. But, but then the question is, where are you acting like Jonah? And, re- and actually running from speaking the word of God to these people who, you, who you're called to love. Right? Who, the, whether it's your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your whomever, right? We're being sent, as Christians, right? we're being sent with a message of love and grace and, and truth to, to, to the world. Whoever's in your life, you're being sent to them. But often we're actually acting like Jonah and running as if they're our enemies. You're actually acting like they're your enemies, you're treating them as your enemies by running from what God's calling you to do. 
And so we, we don't maybe identify with the, with the explicit hatred here that, that we see in Jonah, but we actually act in a very similar way by actually running from, we think we're running uh, for our life, but we're running from it because God's actually saying, this is your life. This is what I'm calling, calling you to do. It's a scary thought to, to treat people we would say that we love with our actions, treat them as our enemy by not uh, actually doing what God's calling us to do and loving them by telling them of God. And so the book of Jonah is holding up a mirror to our own worst tendencies as the people of God. Uh, here, are, here are some of them. So, so part of what Jonah's doing and part of our own natural tendencies, our own worst tendencies, is to co-opt God with our, with our particular nation. And, and in really, in, in the unique history of our nation, we have a unique, this is, this is a unique issue. To co-opt God, the God of the heavens, the God who's made of the nations, with our particular nation, our particular race, our particular political party, when God isn't made in your image. Like that's, that's, the, that's the important thing here. We want, to make, we want a God who's made in our image. We want a God who, who looks like us and agrees with us and thinks like us, but God is way bigger than us. He doesn't fit into our categories. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't fit neatly into any of our systems because he's, he's bigger than them. He's not made in our image. It's actually in, in being found in the image of God, being found in Christ, that we're made in his image. And we get to be remade into who he's actually created us to be. That's, that's, that's where grace finds us, is in recognizing our own worst tendencies, our own natural tendencies, and, and allowing God's grace to meet us in the place of seeing, yeah, my, if it was up to me, I'd be, I'd be fleeing to Tarshish. I'd be hating my enemies. It's the next, next one here. Our natural tendency is to hate our enemy. To, to live in this us versus them kind of reality. And I... I mentioned this a few weeks ago with the um, with with kind of the grace and truth intro, where there's this um, there's this just tribalism. There's this sense of like political, just needing to f- find your sides, and whether you're over here, over there, you're kind of feeling these grenades being tossed back and forth. It's this common enemy. It's the common enemy kind of framework, where I can find some sort of affiliation, some sort of identity within this lesser kind of group, I'm not seeing the common humanity. I'm not seeing the common brokenness. I'm not seeing the, the shared need for grace. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a battle between good, which is me, and evil, which is them. Right? Do we, do we see the brokenness? This is what Jonah is. This is the operation that Jonah's in. It's, it's a battle between me, 
good, and, and Nineveh, evil. Rather than what God's actually exposing in Jonah is that, is that good and evil is divided right down, right down, right down the middle of, of, your, of, your, of you. Like, do you see your own evil tendencies? Do you see your own issues? <clears throat> so, this is a picture we had introduced earlier in the year. Often in this us-versus-them world, we, we're living in the call-out culture. We see it all over Facebook. We see it all over kind of this, this world that, where we distance ourselves and we say, that's wrong and, and you're wrong and, and, I, and I'm essentially perpetuating this, this language of, of hatred and enemy and, and, uh, and these lesser identities. But Jesus is actually... He exists in the call in, where grace and truth intersect, where, 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 the, where, a word of, where a word of truth is actually being brought into a situation, but not to, not to ostracize, not to tear down, but to actually draw in and actually love and actually build up. It's in the call in where Jesus operates, where it's where the church is to operate. And really, to, to kind of cap this, it's in recognizing where we were and now where we are sheerly off of the grace of God. Romans 5 tells it like this. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now shall we be reconciled that we are, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. In other words, in your base nature, in, in your natural tendencies, in your own worst tendencies, prior to God's grace meeting you, you, you are an enemy. You, you've, you've, you've lived a life of, of your own of rebellion, of disobedience, of, of crookedness internally. And God has sent His Son to take on forgiving and loving and redeeming His very enemies. Jesus is the true Jonah. He's the true dove, son of faithfulness, who not only brought a word of reconciliation, of repentance to his people, but he actually gave his very life for the city. He gave his very life for the world. And he calls us to do the same, to follow in his way. In Luke 6, he says to us, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Do you see how eager God is to love those who we don't love? Jonah gives a, a really pathetic five-word sermon. And the whole city repents. Despite to Jonah's best efforts. God is so eager to, to pour out grace, to pour out mercy, to pour out forgiveness, to pour out reconciliation. If we would just speak his words, however inadequate, however imperfect, however lacking in the full picture and the full wordage, we see this in Jonah. Jonah, Jonah doesn't know what he's even saying, but the whole city repents. That's how quick God is, how eager God is to turn. And he's giving us 
his love. He's giving us his mission. He's giving us, hey, just, just go. Trust me. It's not about you. It's not about your having it all together. Trust me. I'll use your imperfections to show my glory. But really, we should see Jesus as the true Jonah, fulfilling the word of the Lord to rise up and go to Nineveh. And really, it should bring about a response of humility and gratitude that God would love the Jonah inside all of us. And that God would yet still be willing and and, and able to use the crookedness that is the Jonah inside all of us to affect and to pour out His mercy and His grace in Nineveh, wherever that is. 